may be seated. What a, a beautiful last stanza for us to sing in light of the loss that our church has experienced. The, the foretaste of deliverance, the hope that we have of the resurrection because of Christ Jesus, that we know we will be raised in power the same way Christ was raised. What beautiful hope that is for the families that have lost loved ones, for our, our brother Harry, for our sister Trudy, for the Nix family, for the Thomases. We, we are just overwhelmed by the hope that we have in the gospel. If you have your copy of God's Word, and I trust that you do, I hope that you do, take it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. We have spent three weeks in this chapter, three of the more heavier weeks than we've ever experienced as a church. And we've really let Romans chapter 11, verse 22 be our guide. Romans chapter 11, 22 says, Behold... The kindness and the severity of God, that's a command for us to behold God's kindness and his severity. We don't really like to look at his severity, and chapter 14 has really been all severity. It's been a warning, which is the kindness of God. That's what Charles Simeon said in the 1800s, a Puritan pastor said, to warn people of danger is the kindest act of love. And so God, in warning us of the wrath to come, is being kind. But even beyond that, as we see the wrath of God, we behold the cross and we see that the wrath that we deserve was poured out on Jesus. Last week, we looked at the three messages that the angels preached, the three proclamations of those angels. The first was an invitation to anyone to worship God. Anyone out there, if you choose to follow God and to worship him and to submit your life to him, you may. And obviously, this is happening in Daniel's 70th week, in the seven-year period that is still yet to come. And the angel is saying, don't bow down to the Antichrist. Don't bow down to his worldly system. Bow down to Christ. Worship him. The second angel preached a message of assurance that opposition to God will not stand. Babylon will fall. The Antichrist's city, the, the, the worldly system and culture that he has placed in the world and on the earth, it will not stand. As people refuse to worship God, they will be punished in a corporate setting and in a corporate sense. But beyond that, the third message that the angel delivered, the third angel delivered a message uh, that anyone refusing to submit to God will be punished individually, not corporately, but individually. And they will be punished forever. We talked about the reality of hell being eternal, involving the suffering of people who are there, involving conscious Torment, not annihilationism, uh, in, involving and inferring the reality of God himself inflicting the judgment and the wrath that we deserve. Then we talked about hell being just, righteous, fair. It's right. I say all that as by, just by way of reminder and a, a summary of last week, but I say all that because that's the foundation of everything that we're going to look at this morning. We continue our study in the judgment of God. We, con we continue our study of, of how God is going to ultimately judge the entire world. So let's read Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 14 and all the way through the end of the chapter. Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, 
having a golden crown on his head and a, a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle. Gather the clusters from the vines of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Father, we... We don't even know what we're asking when we ask that you would come back. We long to be delivered from this world. We long to be home and we long to be in heaven and we long to be with Christ. And so we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And it's right for us to do so. Father, we don't even know what we're asking when we ask that. Because with your second coming to establish the millennial kingdom, to overthrow, defeat the Antichrist, defeat the worldly system that he has put in place. Also with that, to destroy any who follow him. Your second coming means blessing, but it also means destruction. So we come to a text like this and we ask that you would Help us not only to understand and comprehend with our minds, but that we would feel. God, that we'd feel what it feels like for you. To say these words in this chapter and the reality of your wrath about to be poured out. That you do not want to do that, that you desire that no one would perish, but that all would come to saving faith in you but that if they choose not to, that your wrath will be poured out and it will be a glorifying thing. God, we, we need help. There is no way that we can see this text and walk away worshiping if your spirit doesn't open our eyes. So we pray as we pray every Lord's Day, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We are completely dependent on you, Holy Spirit. So do a work in us. Change our affections. And God, for those in this room that are currently pursuing sin, that are currently pursuing anything other than you, that do not love you, that do not submit to you and to you alone, just as we read in Psalm 1, the way of the wicked will perish. And we see that in its fullness here in Revelation 14. God, please open their eyes to see. Be gracious to save. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior.
Amen. The end of Revelation chapter 14 has two main scenes of reaping. This is the reaping over the whole earth. This is judgment that is coming upon the whole earth. Now, there's a question. I really want to answer two questions before we dive in. There's two main questions when we come to this text. Question number one, are these two separate judgments? And in fact, some people would say they're two completely different scenes, one of God bringing the elect home and one of God destroying and judging non-believers. They would see that the grain reaping, the harvest reaping, is a reaping of the elect being called into heaven, and the, the grapes that are being pressed down in the wrath of God are uh, the, ju- the judgment, the punishment that's going to come on non-believers. I, I do not believe that that's the case. I believe that these two scenes are pictures of judgment. I think that they're pictures of the same judgment. There's maybe a little bit of a different timeline of when they're happening. They're both at the end of Daniel's 70th week, and I think that they are the same picture of judgment emphasizing different aspects. In fact, if you would turn in your Bibles back to Joel, turn back to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, remember, in order to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand the Old Testament. Much of Revelation, it's pretty much one out of every five verses deals with a specific quotation or an allusion to an Old Testament passage. So Revelation is all built on the Old Testament. And in Joel chapter 3, and we've already seen a lot coming from the book of Joel in the book of Revelation. There's been a lot of talk, uh, the locusts that are, the the army of locusts, the, the armies that look like locusts, that's language from Joel. We've seen a lot of language from Joel. In Joel chapter 3, verse 13, we see the, the prophecy of this fulfillment in Revelation 14. Joel chapter 3, verse 13, put in the sickle for the harvest of grain is ripe and come tread for the wine press is full. The vats overflow because their wickedness is great. So in Joel 3.13, it's saying there's a harvest of grain and a harvest of grapes, and those two harvests are harvests of judgment. They're pictures of judgment. There's two different emphases of those judgments. Now, that's why in Revelation 14, I I don't believe that this is a a picture of the gathering of the elect into heaven and then a a destruction of non-believers. It's two pictures, two different pictures of the same judgment that's occurring. Second question, who is this One that's sitting on a cloud. Now, there's a lot of reasons why this is a question. I I just want to go right to the answer. I believe that it's very clear biblically that this is not an angel, but this is Jesus Christ himself. He is the one that is doing the judging. He is the one being described as the son of man. He is the one who has the crown on his head, the one who has the sharp sickle in his hand. There's reasons why people think that it might be just an angel. And we'll talk about a few of those. But what I want you to see is... This is a preview, just like everything's been in chapter 14. Everything in chapter 14 has been reassurance to the saints that judgment is coming. Don't worry. God will balance the scales at the end of history. And so this is not happening as these events are being spoken of. John is seen, even in verse 14 at the beginning. Then I looked and behold, that's the the phrase that gets us into a new vision. There's a new emphasis of a new vision. But it's all going to happen later, and this is that word that you're going to get just sick of as you hear it over and over and over again. But this is a proleptic heiress. This is an heiress that is speaking of a future event as if it's already happened. This hasn't happened yet. It's in the future, and I think I can prove that to you because in verse 19, 
the angel is going to swing his sickle to the earth and gather the clusters from the vines of the earth and throw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And Jesus Christ is going to tread down that winepress and judge non-believers. But that doesn't happen until chapter 19. Turn to chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 15. From Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is going to be over the millennial kingdom. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. So chapter 14 is saying this is yet to come. Just like the beginning of chapter 14 said the 144,000 on Mount Zion at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, that's yet to come. Just like the judgment in verses 9 through 12 of all of the non-believers being thrown into hell for all of eternity, that's yet to come. Babylon is yet to fall, but it's being prophesied and predicted so certainly that it can be spoken of as a past event, even though it has yet to happen. So, let's look at the first. We're just going to split it up into two sections, and they're going to be very brief, because they're speaking of the same event. The first reaping that we see is, number one, the reaping of grain. The reaping of grain. This is verses 14 through 16, and then verses 17 through 20 is the reaping of the grapes. So we've got the reaping of grain and the reaping of grapes. The reaping of grain. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. If you go back, turn to Daniel. We have to go back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 is where this is a quotation from. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision. And this vision is quoted by Jesus before Caiaphas when he's on the stand in the Passion Week, Friday morning of the Passion Week. And then it's quoted here in Revelation 14 in the fulfillment of this event. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, or literally on the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel sees that vision, and that is of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and in his second coming to rule and to reign in the millennial kingdom, that language is picked up on in Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, where John sees one sitting on the clouds, like the Son of Man coming on the clouds, just like Acts chapter 1 said, right? Remember the angels as Jesus ascends into heaven on a cloud? The angels say he's going to return the exact same way he ascended. So this is Jesus Christ returning. This is a prophecy of his second coming to rule and to reign. Notice four descriptive elements of who Jesus is. Number one, notice his moral purity. He is on a white cloud. He's on a white cloud. Cloud, white, pure clouds in heaven. He is morally perfect. He is pure, he is undefiled, and therefore the judgment that he is going to bring is right, it's just, it's fair. Notice, secondly, his human person. He's sitting on a cloud, and he is one like a son of man. He is the son of man. Son of man is, from Daniel chapter 7, it's a messianic title, that the one who's going to show up as Messiah to save us from our sins has to be like us in every way except for sin. 
And that's exactly what Jesus is. Revelation chapter 1, John sees one like the Son of Man. He has all the qualities of humanity. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospels. It's used 81 times in the Gospels that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. But very interesting to note, this is the last time in the New Testament that Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. The very first time that Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. And listen to the marked difference between the very first time that Jesus is called the Son of Man and this very last time that Jesus is called the Son of Man. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, the very first time Jesus is called the Son of Man, it says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He is homeless. He is without money, without a job. He is without uh, a family around him. He has nothing. And the last time that he is referred to as the Son of Man, he has a, a crown. He has a sharp sickle, and he has perfect judgment. Number three, notice his awesome power. His awesome power. He has a golden crown on his head. We've seen several times, there's two different words in Greek for crown. There's diadem, which is a crown that's given to a king. And there's stephanos, which is a crown that's given to a victor, to somebody who has won a race or won an Olympic event. That's the word here. This isn't crown given to a king. This is crown given, stephanos, given to a victor, given to somebody who has won a race or won a war. So Jesus has awesome power because he has conquered. And he has given a a wreath, a crown that's made out of gold to be able to signify he is the winner and the victor over everything. And then notice number four, and finally, his terrifying purpose. His terrifying purpose. He has a sharp sickle in his hand. Sickle is the most common word in this passage. It's used seven different times, and it's just a, a device, an instrument for farming. You would go out to the grain. It was had a little st stick with a a little metal blade attached to it, a little curved metal blade attached to it. You would take uh, a handful of grain, you'd twist it so that it would come tight at the bottom, and you would just pull the sickle towards yourself and just cut everything. Anything that the blade touches, it's gone. That's what Jesus has. It's sharp. There's no escaping it. Everything that's grabbed by the farmer would be cut down. Everything touched by that sickle would be destroyed. This is judgment that's going to come. And yes, it's going to come in the Battle of Armageddon. I believe that that's an aspect of what's happening here, but it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. So Jesus is coming with judgment in his hand. Verse 15, another angel came out of the temple. So the father is in the temple. The father has commissioned this angel to go talk to Jesus. And here, by the way, is one of the reasons why people think that the son of man sitting on the cloud is not Jesus, because the angel says... Put in your sickle and reap. And people think, well, that's not good because Jesus is taking orders from an angel. Well, I don't think that Jesus is responding to angelic authority. He's just receiving a notification from the Father. You remember he said the Son of Man doesn't even know when his second coming will be. He doesn't know when the return is going to happen. He's waiting for the Father, and the Father will tell the Son of Man. Here is that happening. The Father tells the Son of Man, and he tells the Son of Man through an angel. The angel says, go, now's the time. No more waiting. No more postponement. The hour has come. And notice why. 
put in your sickle and reap because the hour to reap has come because, here's the motivation, here's the reason why judgment happens now, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, this is where I never, ever, ever want to make you doubt the Bible that you have before you. The Bible that you have before you is absolutely perfect. You can read it. You can understand everything. There is an element to a little bit of an enhanced understanding when you can read the original languages. You don't need to read the original languages because what you have in English is so, so close. But there are times where there's kind of like moving from two-dimensional black and white to moving to three-dimensional color that, that a, a language study will help understand a, a greater picture of what's going on. So in your Bibles, you probably have the word ripe at the end of verse 15. And then if you go to the end of verse 18, you have the word ripe. Same English word. Those are different words in the Greek. And th this is why I think there's two pictures of judgment, just two different emphases of the pictures. The word in the reaping of the grain in verse 15 for ripe is not ripe, bountiful, uh, just bursting with flavor and color and ready to be enjoyed. The word is actually a word meaning past that ripeness to a place of decay and death. And that's the motivating factor here. The angel says, put in your sickle and reap because the hour to reap has come because the harvest is dead. We gave it time to repent. We gave it time to have life. We gave it time to bear fruit. We gave it time, and it's just chosen death. And it's past the point of no return. It's dead. It's completely gone. Easy to be gathered, ready to be burned. I mean, this is just, think of all the California fires that we have. Think of when you see those signs that say uh, level of danger for forest fires with Smokey the Bear on them. I've never seen it not out of that red tier, right? It's just live in California, it's always in the red. Why? Because all of the weeds and all of the brush and all of those plants on the ground, all of them are just burnt to a crisp because we have no water and we have only sun. It just dries everything up. That's the word here for ripe. So ripe isn't good in this case. Ripe in the next case will be just big, fat, juicy grapes ready to be enjoyed. But ripe here is dead. It's gone. It's decayed. That's why Matthew 13, verse 40, Jesus gathers up this harvest and burns it. Just light a tiny little match. This is like when you see people that take Christmas trees out to the desert and they put them, they light them on fire, just this big bonfire. You just, just take a little match and just touch the very bottom of the Christmas tree and it's gone in five seconds. That's what's happening here. So please note, what we understand about the character of God because of that word ripe. God has waited. God has given opportunities. God has given chances and choices and waited for people to repent. And they have chosen not to. And they've chosen to die in their sins. Judgment is literally overdue. They're dried out and withered. And so therefore... I think one of the main emphasis of this passage is no one can accuse God of acting rashly or judging without justice and just cause. Every judgment that God brings is right, just, fair. He's waited and waited and waited. Started uh, teaching 10th grade this um, last couple weeks ago. This last week, a student asked me, why is it that God seems so mean in the Old Testament? 
And then he seems so nice and happy in the New Testament. Why does he seem so mad and mean and angry in the Old Testament, so happy and nice in the New Testament, so loving in the New Testament? I think it's always appropriate to answer questions with questions because that's what Jesus did all the time. So I said, can you give me an example of an Old Testament passage where God seems angry? And he said, yeah, Jericho. God just destroyed a city. I said, do you remember how much time God gave Jericho to repent? Remember what God did to tell Jericho? Hey, by the way, I'm going to destroy the city because of your wickedness if you don't repent. And we talked through marching around the walls, seven days. We talked through Rahab. We talked through repentance. What, what about the flood? It took Noah some 60-odd years to build the ark. That's decades and decades of saying, hey, guys, I'm building a boat because the flood's coming. It's very rare that God just says, without warning, judgment. Very rare. And in fact, the shocker for my student is, the only one that I could think of right off the top of my head is Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. So in the New Testament, you have a God without warning saying death. In the Old Testament, you have a God warning after warning after warning after warning. Please repent. Please repent. And the New Testament is filled with judgment as well. But here, even in this absolutely horrific judgment, God is still saying they've had time. I don't want them to perish. I want them to live. And they've had time, but they've rejected me. And therefore, judgment is coming. Secondly, we see the reaping of the grapes. We see the reaping of the grain as Jesus sits on the cloud and swings his sickle over the whole earth and reaps the whole earth. We move to the second scene in verses 17 through 20 of the reaping of the grapes. Verse 17, another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. So again, getting marching orders from the father. And he also had a sharp sickle. So Jesus has so many opponents so many people in their sin rebelling against him that he needs reinforcement to come and do this work of judgment. And then another angel, verse 18, another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vines of the earth or the vineyards of the earth. This is probably the same angel who had cast fire on the earth earlier in Revelation. And here, just as there, the connection of the imprecatory prayers of the saints for vengeance is obvious. The saints had been praying, please judge the earth. And God said, not yet. It's coming. Wait, it's coming. Be patient. It's coming. And now it is absolutely here. But again, what's the reason? Why is judgment happening now? End of verse 18. Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vines of the earth because the grapes are ripe. Now, we have the word for ripe in the way that we tend to think of it. Just totally full-grown, bursting with flavor, bursting with juices, ready to go, ready to be enjoyed and eaten. Only this time, it's a picture of the wickedness of that fruit. The, the fruit is so bad and it's so, it's so ripe. The works are so bad and they've gotten to the edge of what they can get to. Notice that this is all about works. It's all about fruit. What kind of fruit are you bearing? Because it's not enough to say simply, I have fruit. It's a question of what kind of fruit do you have? These people have amazing fruit. Look at their fruit. It's ripe. It's full grown. It's bursting at the seams with flavor. But it's fruit that is filled with wickedness and sin. It's sinful fruit. This is why Jesus said, either make the 
the, the tree bad and its fruit bad or make the tree good and its fruit good, but you'll know the tree by its fruit. And so the angel said, in the first harvest, we have given them time. We have given them time. They have chosen to reject God and judgment is coming. The second reaping, this reaping of the grapes, now judgment is coming because of their wickedness, their evil, uh, just the atrocious acts of idolatry and heinous evil and wickedness. God says enough's enough. So, verse 19, the angel swings the sickle to the earth, gathers the clusters from the vineyards of the earth, throws them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. This is where God is going to judge. By the way, God could judge this way in any moment. Yes, this is referring to the end times. But judgment for sin and sinners could happen at any moment. God could take you home or God could take you to his judgment seat at any time in any way he wants. It could be a heart attack right now while you're sitting in this church service. It could be a car accident as you drive home. It could be tonight. Uh, it could be, we've said many times, one of the, the strange blessings of just what's gone on with this pandemic is it's reminded us of our mortality. We will not live forever. And none of us thinks that we're going to die sooner than we actually believe we're going to die, right? The, the date of our death is set. God knows it. And all of us think that we have more time than that date. Jonathan Edwards said, the arrows of death fly around you at noonday, and you simply think that you're safe because you can't see them. Death is just all around us all the time. We think we're safe because we don't see it. But one day, one of those arrows, arrows will strike you. And you will go to judgment. But you won't go to judgment right now. You have an opportunity to turn now. You have an opportunity right now to turn. That's the grace of this offer. So the angel swings the sickle, the great wine press. That's a, a horrific analogy where grapes would be put into this vat, this stone vat, and people Either people with their feet would step on it and just squeeze all the grapes and crush them and the grape juice would pour out of a, of a hole on the outside of the wine press. Sometimes it was actually a, a stone vat and then another stone on top of it. And you would put that stone on top of it and you just move that stone around and crush the grapes. That's what's happening here. It's a picture of violence. And verse 20 gives us an imagery of that violence. The wine press was trodden outside the city. That's probably the city of Jerusalem because outside of Jerusalem is where the battle of Armageddon is going to happen. It's going to happen a little bit to the north in the valley of Megiddo. And blood came out from the wine press up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now, this is a verse that, I mean, commentators just go crazy on trying to interpret this. What does it mean, 200 miles, and what does it mean, horses' bridle? Let me give you just a couple options. Horses' bridle, either option A, literally there's going to be a river of blood that's so high it reaches the ho horses' bridle for around 200 miles, a, a kind of a square a square 200 miles of area. Could be that. Could also be, option B, is that it's blood splattering up to the horse's bridle, but in an area that's covered for about 200 miles. Could be either it's a literal river of blood that's that high, or it's the blood spl splattering that high. What about the 200 miles issue? Some of your translations might say 1,600 stadia, which is around 200 miles. There's really four main options. Either it's the entirety of Israel from north to south, that the battle 
at the end of Armageddon starts in Megiddo, but it grows to the entirety of Israel. I don't think that that's the case because the entirety of Israel from north to south is just under 300 miles, so it doesn't quite fit. Secondly, some people say it's the entirety of Israel from east to west, so it's still trying to say the whole of Israel, but the entirety of Israel from east to west is about 85 miles, so it doesn't fit. Some people say that it's a square mile area around Jerusalem. That's a little bit better of an option, but I actually think it's probably option number four, that it's a distance that includes Megiddo to Edom, which is, those are prophesied areas where these battles are taking place, where the Battle of Armageddon is taking place. So I think it's probably including those areas and maybe a little fringe outside of that area. Regardless of how you take it, it's just simply saying where this battle is being fought is covered, it's covering 200 miles. And those 200 miles are 200 miles of severe, intense destruction. Whether it's literally over the span of a square 200 miles that blood is up to the horse's bridles or it's just splattering up to the horse's bridles from everywhere, we still have the same point. This is tragic, severe destruction. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 4 uh, prophesy that this is going to happen. So, as we did for the first reaping where we, we kind of dove into the character of Jesus. I want to dive into the character of this judgment, to the nature of this judgment. Number one, just three truths about this judgment. Number one, the immediacy of this judgment. The immediacy of this judgment. When God finally says enough's enough, it's over. No one in this time will have thought that it was going to be their time. Even in the end times, even in the seven-year period in Daniel's 70th week, we're getting to the end and people still think we can flourish as a city, we can flourish as a country, we can flourish as a nation because we have the Antichrist ruling over us. And by the way, we can establish a kingdom that will rival God's kingdom and will beat him. Nobody would have thought this is it, it's over. No more opportunities. We've said many times from Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, to live as Christ, to die as gain. If you flip that around, if living is not for Christ, if your life is not crucified with Christ, therefore you no longer live, but Jesus lives in you. If that's not true of you, then death is not gain. And the immediacy of this judgment is, is lingering. It's, it's hovering over your head. And death is not gain for you. And God can take you anytime he wants. Secondly, notice the intensity of this judgment. Notice the intensity of this judgment. There's a sharp sickle. It's not a dull blade. It's been sharpened for this exact moment. It's a severe and violent judgment. The wine press analogy is just terrifying. Crushed under the weight of God's wrath. Just think about it. Go back to Jericho. We talked about Jericho. God caused the walls of Jericho to fall with voices and trumpets. How much more could he destroy souls forever in hell when it's him doing that work? How much more so is the judgment of God going to be terrifying to those who rebel against him and choose to live in their unrepentant sin? Remember Joel chapter 3, verse 13, the vats are overflowing with blood. Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have, rest no, day, they have no rest day and night. They cannot rest. It goes on forever. Just like you will always be growing in heaven, you're always going to be growing. You're going to be growing in your love for heaven, your love for people in heaven, your love for Christ. You're going to be growing in your knowledge of the word of God. Heaven's never going to be boring because we're growing in all of those things. Imagine the corollary to hell. 
I believe that people in hell are growing in their knowledge of how much they deserve to be there. Maybe the song of heaven could be amazing grace. And we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when it first began. What's the song of hell? When we've been there 10,000 years, suffering the pain of hell, we've no less days to fear God's pain than when we first began. This judgment is intense. And my friends, I don't want any of you to experience it. Number three, notice not only the immediacy of the judgment and the intensity of the judgment, but third and finally, the justice of the judgment. Again, we talked about this a lot last week. Is it fair, is it right for God to judge the way he's judging? Uh, me in 10th grade, I used to struggle with this formula. If I sin for 70 to 80 years in this life and I die apart from God, separated from Christ, rejecting him, I spend eternity in hell forever. That doesn't make sense to me because I only sin for 70 or 80 years in this life. I should only have 70 or 80 years in punishment in hell. We heard from Jonathan Edwards, which I think he was incredibly helpful last week, talking about why that formula actually makes perfect sense. But let me give you just another example. Another example. If you commit, I don't even know how you would do this, but if you commit espionage against your work, what's going to happen to you? You'll probably be fired, right? That's all that's going to happen. If you do some spy work for another company and they find out that you spied on your own company, you're going to get fired. If you commit espionage against America, what's going to happen? You're going to be executed. Same crime. What's the difference? Because of the beauty, the power, the glory, the majesty of the one you are sinning against. So what if you commit espionage against God? The answer is, God can yield the sickle of his judgment because he wears the crown. Because he is king, he is sovereign, he is victor. Therefore, the judgment that we experience in hell is absolutely just. It is fair. It is right. Everyone in hell knows that they deserve it, and no one is arguing against it. Again, if you want a greater detailed assessment of that reality, you can listen to last week's message. There is a reality that God is glorified by hell. His justice reigns supreme in hell. Some say that hell is not good of God. It's not loving of God. And we can talk about this so many times, and we will over the course of our time together in the book of Revelation. But I've heard, and I just want to use one example, I've heard people say that it's like a dog that maybe got hit by a car and, and it's going to die, and, and it would be nice of you not to let that dog linger in its death, but to put it out of its misery. And so it's therefore unloving of God to see sinners being punished in hell in misery and suffering, not to just end their suffering, just end it. So is that a good argument? Is it good to say, well, God is not being good and not being kind and not being fair and not being loving because he sees people in misery and suffering. He should just end it if he was a God of love. That, that analogy, that illustration, that example falls far short for two reasons. Number one, it's missing the creature-creator distinction, right? Me looking at a dog, though I'm not an animal, I am yet still a created being. We're both creatures. If we sin against God, that's a creature-creator distinction. We have disobeyed what our God has said. But secondly, 
Hell isn't a place of suffering where people there are saying, why am I here? This is an accident. That example of the dog, that's an accident. A dog accidentally got hit by a car. It's not punishment. Hell is punishment for sin. That example falls far short of any sense of reality of what hell is. Hell is a place where sin is punished. Again, it's not purgative, it's punitive. So we see the reaping of the grain. We see the reaping of the grapes. Again, I believe that this will happen. These two specific events or these two symbols and illustrations of that one event will happen at the end of Daniel's 70th week. So it's still yet to come. But I think that we can end exactly where we ended last week. The reality of the fear of hell. It should terrify us. It should. But the terror of hell is powerless to produce what needs to be produced for salvation. It is. It cannot produce saving faith. Fear of future wrath cannot by itself produce saving faith. It can scare you in the right direction for sure. But it cannot produce saving faith. The only thing that can produce saving faith is seeing that your sin is an offense against God and the God that you have offended loves you so much He gave himself to bear your penalty, to bear your sin, to bear the just judgment that you owe for your sin. And as you see the beauty of Jesus, you realize, I have not sinned against some uh, grandfatherly figure in heaven who's just this mean old chess player moving things around on earth. No, I've sinned against the most precious person in the universe. I have hurt and offended my God, my Father, When you realize that, it's not fear of future wrath that changes your heart. It's the reality that you have sinned against the one that your heart wants the most. That's the only thing that can provide saving faith, a love for Christ. And so we see infinite wrath. We see a temporal, finite time and space wrath that's going to then produce infinite wrath. And Once again, we have to ask, how did Jesus overcome this wrath? How can we escape this wrath? And the answer is, and always will be, and always has been, the cross. That's the only way that we can be forgiven. That's the only way we can be saved. If our sin deserves infinite punishment, and Jesus can take that infinite punishment, and then rise from the dead, die, but then rise from the dead, and conquer that infinite punishment, then that tells us that our Savior is more magnificent, glorious, and and filled with beauty than any horror or terror of hell could possibly have. Jesus swallows hell up in three hours on the cross, rises from the dead, and says, it's finished. It's done. So the grace that we are given through the gospel is infinitely more precious and valuable to us because of the eternality of hell because of the understanding of how awful hell is. What about you this morning? Are you afraid of hell? Can you honestly say that you've thought, maybe it's in your bed at night, I do this every night as I'm falling asleep. I listen to my heartbeat, usually it's through my ears as my head's on the pillow, and I count heartbeats. And as I'm falling asleep, I pray and I say, God, my heart could stop right now. It could stop while I'm asleep. And if it does, and I see you, what am I going to say? We talked about this on Wednesday night in evangelism. 
you were to die today and stand before God and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? How would you respond? 99% of people would say, oh, I should get into heaven because I'm a good person. I've tried to live a good life. I've tried to do virtuous things. I've tried to be nice. If God said that to me, why should I let you into heaven? I would answer, you shouldn't. I have zero reason to be there. I have only reason to be in hell based off of who I am and what I've done. I have never deserved, never earned, never could merit heaven. So if you're asking me, God, why I should get into heaven based off of what I've done, the answer is I should never be there. But you told me that you sent your son, born as a human, the son of man, born to live in my place, to be perfect in everything, not just his actions. He never had one evil thought. He never had one sinful attitude, not one sinful emotion. Perfect obedience, a 33-year record of never sinning and always fighting the temptations to sin with a victory. And then he goes to the cross, and at the cross... You, Father, treated Jesus as if he had lived my sinful life. You took all of my sin and put it on him, and you took all of his perfection for 33 and a half years and put it on me. That's not fair at all for Jesus. But you told me that you sent him because you loved me. So, Father, why should I be in heaven? Not because of anything I've done, but because of everything Jesus has done. He took my penalty, so going to hell wouldn't make sense because he already took that penalty. And he gave me perfection, so I don't get into heaven based off of what I've done. I get into heaven based off of what Jesus has done in my place for me. So I claim Christ. And every night as I go to bed, I just say, I claim the mercy of Christ. I plead the blood of Jesus. He's the only hope that I have. And if you know that this morning, then you know why, you know why we love him so much here at CBC. You know why he's worthy of every affection that we have. Therefore, our sin and the punishment of hell and the fear of hell, that's not why we're ultimately sad. We're not sad as believers because of the consequence of our sin. We're sad because of how horrific it is to our Savior. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. We have found our pleasure in grieving Christ. This is what sin is. We've found pleasure in grieving him. We've called his commands burdens. And we've called his service weariness. Shall we not repent of this? Can we continue to act so basely? This day, my God, I hate sin, not because it damns me, but because it has done thee wrong. To have grieved my God is the worst grief to me. What about you? Do you feel that way? Do you feel that to grieve God through your sin is the worst grief to you? Do you understand that you have found pleasure? Every time you sin, you're finding pleasure in what grieved Jesus. You are loving and treasuring what Jesus died to free you from. Every time you sin, you are calling his commands burdens. You're calling God an idiot. You're saying, God, I wish your 
your command and rule over my life was over because your rules are dumb, they make no sense, and honestly, I wish that I were God and you were not. That's why it's so wicked, so evil, and that's why it's so grievous. So, let's summarize this and we'll conclude and then we'll go to the Lord's table. I just want to read John Walvoord here. He gives a helpful summary of all of chapter 14, which has just been a very heavy chapter. Taken as a whole, chapter 14 of Revelation emphasizes first that the 144,000 of Israel, being at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, will be preserved triumphantly through it. Second, the rest of the chapter is devoted to various pronouncements of divine judgment upon a wicked world, reassuring the saints of that day. Though they may suffer and even be martyred, God's ultimate justice will triumph. The wicked will be judged, and the saints will be rewarded. The chapter reassures the saints that after those, after those two preceding chapters have spoken of giant conflicts, that there will be a day of consummation in the Great Tribulation. The Im- implications of the message for today are only too plain. Today is a day of grace. But what is true of the Tribulation is also true of today, namely that God will ultimately judge all men. However, today, the invitation is still open to those who will trust in Christ and who thereby can avail themselves of the grace of God and be saved from entering this awful period which may be impending for this present generation. So why is chapter 14 here? Two reasons. Number one, chapter 14 is here to reassure you that evil will be punished. You and I live in a world where evil is rampant. And even in America, we see it much less than what's going on around the world. And my friends, I want to reassure you. God wants to reassure you. He's not turning a blind eye to it. Either the evil that we see going on will be punished in Christ on the cross as the evildoers repent, turn from their sins, and trust in the Savior, the same Savior that we trust in for salvation, the same place where our judgment has been poured, or they will be judged forever in hell. So what that should do for you and for me That should take any burden off of us to take vengeance for ourselves. This is why God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Evil will be destroyed. You don't have to do that. Number two, and I think that this is probably the most important for us today. Why is chapter 14 here? Number two, to push you off the edge of indecision. In the words of Psalm 2, verse 12, Serve the Son, kiss the Son, serve Him, worship Him, lest His anger be kindled at you and you perish. If you make light of hell, then salvation is no big deal. If you understand what hell truly is, and these, chap- these verses, these uh, meditations in this chapter have helped us to understand what hell really is. If you understand what hell really is, you cannot grab onto salvation fast enough. Judgment is coming. And right now, God's judgment is held up behind a dam where God is waiting for you to repent. But one day, that dam will be opened up. So where are you? Do you know Jesus Christ? Not just know about him. Do you love him more than anything in this world? Do you treasure him? Do you find your greatest satisfaction in him? Do you hate your sin? One of the realities of these verses is we have seen explicitly the wrath that our Savior experienced. Such that when we come to the table and we see of the substitutionary death and atonement made at the cross, 
We have read of what Jesus had to experience. And we haven't even finished the totality of judgment. But we've read the wrath that God is going to pour out in the world and the wrath that God poured out on his son for all who would believe. So therefore, I want, I want to encourage you. Romans eleven twenty two says, Behold the kindness and severity of God. We have beheld the severity of God. And now we have the privilege, as we partake of these elements, to behold the kindness of God. He's made a way for you to be saved. And if you're here this morning and you know that salvation, oh, you have a reason to rejoice. And if you're here today and you don't know that salvation, I plead with you, trust in Jesus. You don't know when you're going to die. Turn to Christ. Yes, sin has pleasure for sure, but in the end, Proverbs says, it brings death. Turn now to the Savior who said, I will give you my body, I will give you my blood, I will give you everything that I have so that you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. Father, we thank you for our time in Revelation 14. And now as we examine our own hearts and we prepare to partake of communion to meditate on your grace, to meditate on your substitution, to meditate on your body being broken and your blood being poured out. God, I pray that you would do a work in us to celebrate Christ, to glory in the finished work of the cross. It is finished, and you, Father, said yes it is when you raised Jesus from the dead. So, Father, may we feast, may we be reminded of the gospel through this beautiful picture that we get to feast on the body of Jesus, that he has offered himself to all, anyone who will come, and be satisfied as you eat. And he's offered himself in his complete life, lived perfectly, and his death on the cross being poured out, his blood spilled for us. So, Father, may we enjoy these moments as we glory in the gospel. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask the men to come and...